Thank you for listening to the Rivers Church podcast with Pastor Andre and the Rivers team. Be sure to subscribe for a weekly dose of encouragement and inspiration to help your daily life. We pray that this message will help in whatever season of life you might be in. Well, we're continuing on our series, New Beginnings, Part 6 today, and we're going to look at chapters 8 and 9 in the book of Genesis. And we've been looking at the fact that Genesis is a very, very important book. The first 11, 12 chapters of the book set the tone for the whole Bible. And lots of people underestimate Genesis. So today we are putting it in the forefront so that we don't lose sight of it in a world that is reinterpreting truth and reinterpreting the Bible. In a book called A Practical Guide, let me say that again, in a practical Guide to Primeval History by Matthew McMahon and his wife Teresa McMahon. They say this, Genesis is often a neglected or misunderstood book by the Christian community at large. It is not placed on a level as important as Psalms or the Gospel of John. But without Genesis, we would not have our creation account, the history of the first people who lived on the earth, the reason why people live, the reason why people die, the importance of worship, and a host of other important and necessary foundational topics. How many of you would agree? If we didn't have Genesis, we'd be floating with the New Testament truth, but it's all anchored when we study the book of Genesis. Now, we've looked at the beginnings, the fall. We've looked at God's uh, judgment on man because of sin. Then we've looked at Cain and Abel, the first murder, second generation, no political system, no bad social conditions, and murder enters the world. And then we come to the place where God says, I'm going to destroy the earth because 10 generations in, every inclination of the heart of people is evil. And he selects this, the Bible says, righteous and blameless man called Noah. And he puts him in the ark, and we've been reading about that. And then we ended, the last verse we ended with was the fact that it rained for 150 days, five months of rain. You think a week is bad? in Johannesburg, but it rained for five months. And we're going to pick up here because we're going to discover what's called the post-flood world, and we're going to see the promises and character of God, which you mustn't lose sight of. That's my big point today. So in the maze of information that you're going to go through, don't lose sight of that. What did God say about this planet we're living on right now? What promises did he give? What covenant did he make? So we'll start by reading Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1, and it will be a marathon up to verse 22. Are you ready? It says, but God remembered Noah. It's not that he forgot him. He had him in mind, the Hebrew implies. And all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. You'll notice when the wind blows over your swimming pool, the level of it drops. Amazing thing. And here we see this in action in the beginning of the world. Now, the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky, and the water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. I have to pause here. Underline that if you've got your book with you, because the 17th day of the seventh month is interesting. It's the month called Nisan, N-I-S-A-N, and it became the first month for the Jews. 
This was the seventh month in the, what we call like this, the, the, the secular calendar. But in the religious calendar, God said, this will be the first month for you. And the 17th day is the day they passed through the Red Sea when they left Egypt. Also, it's the day that they started eating from the land of Canaan and the manna stopped on the 16th day of this month. Also, it's the day Jesus rose from the dead. The Sunday when they went to the tomb was the 17th day of the seventh month, which became the 17th of Nisan. So the Bible talks about all these things in a very careful way. Here Noah comes out into a new beginning and we see all the parallels. He had just come through water and Israel had gone through water and became a new nation, a new beginning. And it says, you notice, it said it rested on the mountains of Ararat, not the mountain of Ararat. Today in, in, in Turkey, there's a mountain called Ararat. It's not that one. This is a whole long mountain range. In fact, if you study scripture, you'll see there was a country called Ararat in the book of 2 Kings chapter 19. Let's keep reading. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, now opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. You know, they eat flesh. And so he wanted to see, and he kept flying back and forth until the water dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Isn't it? Of all the trees, it would be peace. Hey, Beautiful. And uh, whenever, when the dove returned, sorry, then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the month of Noah's 601st year, it was a whole year in the ark, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Now just pause with me here. How many of you know he's been looking to see if the ground is dry? He's testing. Very important principle here. Notice the next verse. It says, then God said to Noah, you see, God works like this. You have to use your initiative and he'll also speak. It's not one or the other. Because you think, well, he tried all these things. When God told him to come out, that was the right time anyway. No, God uses both methods to guide us. And here's this important principle in Scripture in the early Passages of Genesis. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives, bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground. Watch this. So they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. First instruction is multiplication of both animals and people. Are you with me? And you need to remember this when we come further on. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wives and his sons' wives and all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the land came out of the ark, one kind after another. This is so beautiful. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, not a house. You need to know that no matter what you go through, the first thing you put in your life is an altar. The first person you put in your life is God. But I've been through such a hard time. It's been a hard month and I got paid. We're going, for the, we're going out for breakfast. No, come to church and go for lunch. Are you with me? It's a principle of scripture. It's not because Rivers Church says so. It's just a way you ought to live your life. 
And here it says, taking some of the clean animals, which you would use to eat, sheep and goats and so on, and clean birds, which were pigeons, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Notice the word, if you're making notes, sacrificed. Here was limited supply, but he sacrificed. And when you've got limited supply, you still need to sacrifice. Are you? First thing was worship, not anger at God. First thing is gratitude for his deliverance. And notice also blood. Blood sacrifice was ingrained in that early culture. Verse 21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart. Now make notes here with me. This is the first of three covenantal promises that God makes with Noah. And you need to remember these. Very, very important. Number one, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Then here's the second promise, and this is extremely important. As long as the earth endures, seed, time, and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Here we're going to stop and we're going to talk a bit. It's very important for you to understand that God made a covenantal promise that the planet will carry on until he decides it will end. No amount of car fumes is going to stop this planet. We are not all going to die of global warming because this is not just a declaration. This is a covenantal promise based on the name and character of God. You see, I want to speak about the, the environmental movement that has, has become an alternative religion. If you're under 50 years old and listening to this either on television or in this room today, if you're under 50 years old, the chances are that you're expecting to see climate change cause chaos and even death in your lifetime. We have been so impregnated with the fact that we've got overpopulation and that the air is dirty that we've made it a religion when God says, I will never destroy the earth by flood, even though there's tsunamis. You can go to the bank on that. And seed time and harvest. In other words, production and development and seasons will continue. There'll be fluctuations in them. Sometimes summer lasts longer. Sometimes winter lasts longer. But these cycles are decreed by God. Are you with me? And you've got to believe God or believe popular culture. Even in the movie, the Avengers Infinity War, Thanos in the Marvel Universe in 2018 declares with cultural certainty, the universe is finite. Its resource is finite. If life is left unchecked, life will cease to exist. <gasps> yes. We are so paranoid by these things. We've been told that there are less trees and that the trees are, you know, are, are, the, are the big issue. And so we, we protest when people cut down trees to farm in order to feed people in developing countries. But are these facts actually true? I've read 19 books on environmentalism. My question to you, don't put your hand up today, is how many have you read or have you watched CNN and NBC and Sky and drawn your conclusion? We need to read the Bible. You can clap. And if you feel the urge to walk out, you can. Because I believe in global warming, but I don't believe in, in man-made global warming. Others the Bible is wrong. And God's promises are incorrect. I believe in good stewardship. Because good stewardship is often efficiency. We've got solar panels on this building. Why? Because it's efficient, free energy. I don't do it because I'm, we're going to die. There's a difference. One's driven by fear. One's driven by wisdom. Are you with me? No one talks about this. So, so they tell us the trees are dying out, and because of that, we've got no chance. 
But I read in the, you can read this book, 10 Global Trends That Every Smart Person Should Know. And they say this, the global tree canopy increased by 2.24 million square kilometers between 1982 and 2016. That's a land area larger than Alaska and Montana combined. Isn't that different to what you're hearing? It's amazing. In fact, Naomi Klein, a Canadian activist, anti-capitalist, anti-globalization, argues this. She says, civilization is on a collision course and we are destabilizing the planet's life support system. The philosopher John Gray said this, human beings are homo rapians, a predatory and destructive species that is approaching the end of civilization. Is this true? I do not think so, because God's promises are yes and amen, and God has set this planet up until he decides that the cycles and the seasons will continue. We need to be good stewards of it, but we mustn't live in fear because he has made a covenantal promise that there will be production and growth. Do you know one of the biggest things that irks me about the environmental movement? It's anti-production and anti-progress. And it's fine when you're a developed nation. What about the poor? In fact, the people who have the least impact on the globe are the poor because they've got nothing and they do nothing. And now that your nation's developed, you can start talking eloquently. I believe we need to get rid of fear and go back to Scripture. That's why the book of Genesis is so important. It's so, so important, and we need to believe. In fact, I want to give you the six steps here so that you can recognize climate paranoia. Are you with me? The six steps that they use to create climate, what they call climate change paranoia. And a guy called Arthur Stepanian came up with them. Uh, Number one, start with the assumption that man is ravaging the earth. Bad mankind, good animals, he says. You see, we are homo rapians. And so this premise Man's bad, and he's, he's come here, and he's destroying the planet. Number two, latch onto unproven scientific hypotheses that fits this preconception. It's not proven scientific. Read some books, and you'll find out it's not proven. In fact, if anything, if, 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 and I'll come to it. In June 2022, that's just recently, the New Zealand government planned to tax cow burps and cow wind. That's how absurd it is. That animals are going to be taxed. How are you going to measure it? Oh, there's another one. Man with a chart. And you pay money, and where does it go? It doesn't stop them burping or breaking wind. Number three, here's the third paranoia. Extrapolate wildly from half-formed theories and short-term trends to predict a future apocalypse. But he says their famous phrase is this, if present trends continue. And then he says, but we know they don't. Trends change. The earth, in fact, right now, if you see chat, is it GPT? The AI has actually done an analysis of all the news reports and weather reports in the world and says that actually the planet isn't getting warmer, it's actually getting cooler. But if present trends continue, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. Ecologist Kenneth Watt He declared, by the year 2000, if present trends continue, we will be using up crude oil at such a rate that there won't be any more crude oil left. That's 23 years ago. Hmm? But Harrison Brown, the scientist at the Academy of Sciences, looked at metal reserves, and uh, he said that we would run out of copper uh, just after the year 2000. Lead, zinc, tin, gold, and silver would be gone before 1990. 
how come people don't raise these issues? Because these are scientists. This is a scientist at the National Academy of Sciences. Number four, let me move on. I've got so much to say. I'll be kind. He says, this is what you do to create climate paranoia. You pressure a bunch of people with PhD after their names to endorse it so that you can say it's the consensus of experts. In fact, in 1988, the then senator in America, Timothy Worth of Colorado, said this, we've got to try to ride the global warming issue. Even if the theory of global warming is wrong, we will be doing the right thing anyway in terms of economic policy and environmental policy. So it can be wrong, but we'll push it because it's got good ends. My word. Hmm? Number five, he says this, get the press to broadcast it with even less nuance and get a bunch of Hollywood celebrities who failed high school biology to adopt it as their pet cause. This is not me, this is him saying it, but I thought it was very funny. Isn't it true that people from Hollywood, when they say something, they endorse it. Remember Al Gore's movie? Hmm? In 2009 at the Copenhagen Climate Conference, Al Gore said this, there's a 75% chance that the entire North Polar ice cap during some of the summer months could be completely ice-free within the next five to seven years. That would have made it 2016. In fact, statistics show that it's actually increased. But we watch these movies and then we're paranoid. Dennis Hayes, who was the chief organizer of what's called Earth Day, started in 1970. He said, it's already too late to avoid mass starvation. Hmm? And Dennis Hayes on his website says this. So what happens next? More droughts, heat waves, which can be devastating effects on the poorest countries and communities. So they pull at the strings of your heart. Hurricanes will intensify and occur more frequently. Sea levels could rise up to four feet by, 20, by 2100. And that's a conservative estimate among experts. What's an expert? He's a little spurt away from home. <laughs> I heard that somewhere, tongue in cheek. Now, here's the, here's the question. Are you going to listen to experts who tell us that, the, you know, that four feet is, what is it, like 1.2 meters? That, uh, how come all the politicians are still living on the coast? That's my question, including Al Gore. If you really believe this, your actions would show something different. And here's my point. I'm not arguing on environmentalism. I'm going back to the Bible. See, the Bible makes me say, no, you're not right. Are you with me? It's so important for us to listen. Psalm 118 gives us this advice, church, in the good news. It is better to trust in the Lord than to depend on human beings. It is better to trust in the Lord than to depend on human leaders. Number six, here's the sixth thing to create climate paranoia. He says, uh, quietly drop the whole thing when it doesn't pan out and move on with undiminished enthusiasm to the next environmental doomsday scenario. See, Al Gore said in 2009, this is 2009, he said the North Pole will be ice-free in the summer of 2013 because of man-made global warning. Yet by 2014, as the article says, there was a 43% increase in Arctic ice. In a newspaper article, he said polar bears would disappear, but there are now 42% more polar bears than when he made the movie. Are you getting the point? There's some websites that you can look at. You hear two, seven big failed predictions by two different people, and they're worth reading, and I'll bring them up on the screen. Uh, yeah, you can scan that. Now, don't go and read it now, because I'm talking. 
But if you want evidence, there are mountains of evidence on this. I'm not speaking on that. I'm speaking on Genesis. But I want you to understand this stuff, and you can look it up yourself. Here's something interesting. In January 1970, Life magazine reported this. Listen, church. Scientists have solid experimental and theoretical evidence to support the following predictions. This is 1970. In a decade, urban dwellers will have to wear gas masks to survive air pollution. By 1985, air pollution will have reduced the amount of sunlight reaching the earth by one half. Anyone got a gas mask that you were using during the 80s? These, this, these are scientists. Now, let me just take you to something very important because it affects everyone here in the room, and some of you have probably made a decision already to buy an electric car. Did you know that all the carbon gases in the world are 51 billion gigatons? If you're making notes, 51 billion gigatons. Of that, cars emit only 3.6 billion gigatons, 7% of the entire global carbon emissions come from cars. Are you with me? But wait. You say, well, isn't that a good thing? Why are cars focused on, and why are we making this massive drive like they're killing us, when Carnival Ships Cruise Line, their ships every year emit 10 times the carbon emissions of all the cars in Europe. So why the obsession with cars? See, because you can control human beings. And through fear, you can get anything done. And if you're like me, drive a V8, you can tax me more and I can't do anything. Are you hearing me this morning? And this is not about some issue that I'm, I've got to bug me about. I want you to know why I believe what I believe. It's because Scripture contradicts it. Scripture points to the fact that we need to continue to progress. And you can, if, you, if you're making notes, you can watch a movie called The Big EV Lie, The Big Electric Vehicle Lie. The guy speaks about it extensively, facts, figures, and so on and so forth. And, uh, and you, you know, it, they never talk to you about the batteries and what's going to happen when all these lithium-ion batteries are buried in the ground and we can't get rid of them. All the solar panels that have got all sorts of chemicals in them. In, in, in California, they're paranoid already. All the landfills are full of them. And they reckon for, for us to power the planet, we're going to need 51.4 billion panels. So you replace one thing for another. There's no such thing as clean emissions. Everything has a byproduct if you're creating energy because we're living under the fall. Some might be more efficient than others. And uh, I was reading in the desert in a place called uh, Desert Sunlight, they've got this massive farm with all these panels. They had a storm there, and the storm destroyed 200,000 panels. One storm, just one storm, destroyed 200,000 of those panels. So, so here's, my, here's, my, here's, here's my point here, because it's so important for us to understand this. Dustin Malvini, talk, talking about, he's an environmental studies professor. He says, contrary to previous assumptions, pollutants such as lead, or carcinogenic cadmium can be almost completely washed out of the fragments of solar modules over a period of seven months, by example, by rainwater. So your panels that you've got on your roof, I've got on my roof right now, we have to have them because of ESCOM, they are not pollutant-free. Stop thinking they're the perfect answer. Nothing that produces energy is a perfect answer. Are you with me? And so we can live in an illusion, not that I'm saying we mustn't have them, Let's think efficiency rather than fear. And I thank God for the time when, uh, in the 70s, when there was an oil crisis, cars became more efficient. That's a good thing. Less money, less pollution in the air, better for us. But don't think we're killing the planet. Don't sing the song, killing me softly with his car, killing me softly. No. 
You see, I'm not a climate denier. I just believe that it can't contradict what God has said. And this is what I want to say. You can clap if you want to. I feel you want to. This is what I want to say. If you believe this stuff, then live in accordance with it fully. Don't do anything. Basically, don't live. And the people that propose it, like Al Gore, they live on the coast where they're telling us the water's going to rise. And then you go to the World Economic Forum in Davos, and they talk about climate change and how we all need to change, and then there's all their private jets standing outside. You see, it doesn't add up. Don't speak out of two sides of your mouth. I'd speak Bible, and I, I trust that. But don't be a contradictor. Hmm? You see, we want to be efficient but the big thing about this for me is that it denies progress and it makes man an invader on the planet and a problem. And God says, no, I've cleaned everything away and I've made a covenant. My, my character is tied to that covenant. Go out there and multiply. Let's read on. Let's trust God rather than climate activists who are gluing their hands to paintings and my word. When I watch it, I go, they'll grow up. Genesis 9 verse 1. Are you with me? We're not done with this thing yet. Watch. It's going to get worse. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, what did he say? Be fruitful and increase. I want you to underline the word increase in number and fill the earth. God's not afraid of overpopulation. He repeats Genesis 1 and verse 22. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground and on all the fish in the sea that are given, they are given into your hands. Right in the margin that man is not an invasive species, he is the pinnacle of creation. And we need to be good stewards, not abuse animals, not just deplete resources. We need to think carefully. But at the same time, we've got to get the right concept of man. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Apparently, there was a limited supply of protein after the flood. And we talked to Dr. Tony, who told us that there is no substitute for animal protein. If you're a vegan, I don't want to argue with you. We've done some talks with him on it. He says there's nothing that you can take orally or that's in plants that can substitute animal protein. There's a, he gave us the whole scientific thing for it. But here God clearly speaks about it. You can argue with God when you're at home. <laughs> I love preaching to this first service. You guys are so good. Are you all with me? But watch, but you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. In other words, when an ox gores a man to death, they are told in the law to put him to death. I will demand an accounting, uh, uh, was and, and from every human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, uh, by humans shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. So we can kill animals for food. God distinguishes between man and animals. But when it comes to man, he here institutes capital punishment. Now, I don't think God thought they'll get it perfectly right. He knew we'd get it wrong. And in fact, by instituting capital punishment, God is here instituting government because up till this time, God was the government. But he is beginning to say, this is how you are to regulate an evil society. There need to be measures, otherwise you will run rampant. How many of you have seen how rampant our society runs? I'll tell you what, even if my child, one of my children, were convicted unfairly of a murder, I'd still believe in capital punishment because it's God's word. 
Don't get emotional about abortion and homosexuality and capital punishment as soon as your family is involved. Stick to the truth of principle above it. Otherwise, everything is run by emotion. We make a decision, but when emotion comes into it, then we change our minds. No, it's principle. And I want to punt that, but that's why you read in Romans 13 that we need to obey governing authorities and so on. And uh, interesting in the New Testament when they told the Gentiles, you know, you don't have the law because you're not Jews. Look what they told them from the book of Genesis. I want you to see this quickly. Acts 15. Are you all with me? The, 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 the apostles said to the, to, the, to the Gentile Christians, it is my judgment, therefore, this is Peter speaking, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols. And he chose like, you'll notice, and he chose three things here. Food polluted, uh, sorry, polluted by idols. Sexual immorality, so you can see that's a big issue with God. And from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. It looks like four things, but strangled animals and blood is the same thing. See, blood, when you kill an animal in the correct way, blood drains out of it. When you strangle an animal, the blood coagulates in there and congeals in there and doesn't flow out, and so you're eating the lifeblood. So it's actually one command. Isn't it interesting that in talking to the modern Christians of the time, Genesis is cited because God's Word doesn't change. Let me move along. I've got a lot to cover this morning. Are you being helped? Genesis 9 and verse 7, as for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Can you see it's the second time the Lord says it? And then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, in other words, Abraham, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on the earth. I establish my covenant with you. And now he says here, it's the third time, the third promise he makes, if you're making notes, Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. In other words, there will never be a global flood again. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between you and me and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the flood Will the waters come, sorry, never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. He's distinguishing between local floods. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant, there's an important word, between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. And God said to know, this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all life on earth. Circle the word covenant and write this down, a binding agreement. And just the reason I say this is, unlike marriage, I mean, you know, marriage isn't a binding agreement. You can duck out of it if you've got a good lawyer. And if you're in Rivers Church and they say you shouldn't get divorced, you can always go somewhere else. And they'll receive you with open arms, especially if you're a tither. You see, this binding agreement is different. God says, in order to break this, I have to, I have to kill me. Because me is the guarantee. And if he says the earth's going to continue... And he says that this is the way things are going to be. You can go to the bank on it. And we need to believe the Bible. And uh, just incidentally, this upturned bow, the rainbow, do you notice the bow's turned up? It's a symbol of war, the bow. But you know, God says, he's pointing to Jesus. He's saying, if I ever bring judgment to the planet again, I will take the judgment on me. Guess what? When God judges the earth at the end of the world, who will take the judgment uh, on himself for the Christians who trust in him? Jesus. 
God will fire an arrow into Jesus. He did at the cross. And now we are not judged anymore. And the bow is no longer a symbol of war, but it's a symbol of peace. And unfortunately, it has been hijacked. But this is the point I want to make here this morning. Listen to me. The be fruitful and multiply and increase is very important because you are being told day in and day out, like climate change, that we are overpopulating the earth. There's the overpopulation theory. In fact, during COVID, there was a meme with the slogan, humans are the virus, COVID is the cure, that began circulating. How many of you saw that? And so we've got to ask ourselves, is the world overpopulated? And did God make a mistake when he said, be fruitful and multiply? Or should he have said, be fruitful and multiply up till 1700 and then thou shalt stop? <laughs> Listen to me today, because this... Are you being told the earth is overpopulated? In fact, at the World Economic Forum in 2020, a lady called Dr. Jane Goodall, who's highly respected, she said, human population growth is responsible for most environmental problems. Emma Olive, who's an ecologist in a UK-based company called Population Matters, she says, more of us is only going to make the environment worse. They say this is the reason why Meghan Markle and Prince Harry are deciding only to have two children because of overpopulation and environmental concerns. Well, I'm not surprised because Prince Charles is well known for his views on overpopulation, even suggesting that war is a good thing because it culls the number of people. And this will be the King of England, incidentally. But the population isn't growing as you think. Its growth was only 2.1% in 1960. It's now 1.7%. Just the stats go. But the reason we have this population view is you need to track it back. So you stay with me. I've got six minutes. I'm going to go very quickly. Number one is what's called the Malthusian theory. A man called Malthus, Thomas Malthus, in the 19th century, posited that having too many people in the world was the cause of hunger, starvation, disease, and war. And from him, everybody now believes what's called the Malthusian theory. The second one is called eugenics. Eugenics came as a result of Hitler believing that certain races are pure, certain races, and so we should thin the population and only keep the healthy. And uh, Prince Charles, who's dubbed the climate king, by the way, is a great supporter of population reduction. We then get what's called, number three, the population bomb. And a book was written by a man called Paul Ehrlich, The Population Bomb. And uh, he, he, listen to this, this is what Paul Ehrlich said, this is in 1970. Uh, sorry, 1968, he said, the battle to feed humanity is, is over. In the 1970s, the world will undergo famines. Hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. In fact, he said this, he said, if you have more children, it's like having the right to throw more garbage in your neighbor's yard. How many of the Christian view of children is not that? The Christian view of marriage is not that. If God says be fruitful and multiply, he believes there's enough space and enough food. In fact, this has proved not true. If you read a book and you need to read it, it's called Superabundance. And it, they say that food production is significantly up. In fact, it's so, food production has increased so much in the world that we no longer have starvation. We've got obesity in Africa and we've got obesity in America. Isn't that interesting? Because there's so much food and grain yields have risen in the 20th century because of hybridization, the synthesis of nitrogen fertilizer, and improved pest and weed controls, and genetically enhanced crops. Those are facts that I don't have time to tell you about, but in a book called The World is Getting Better, you can read that. But here's a book called Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future 
by Johann Norberg. He said, by the 2000s, China produced enough surplus food to export to the world's markets after suffering famines, famines under communism. He goes on to say, about 6 million fewer Ethiopians face chronic hunger today than in 1990, even though the population has increased by more than 40 million. Facts, people. Facts. Not cherry-picked facts. Facts. Good book I mentioned earlier, 10 Global Trends That Every Smart Person Should Know. He says in 1961, the world's farmers, farmers harvested 735 million metric tons of grain, providing an average of 247 kilograms for each of the globe's 3 billion people. By 2017, world global production had nearly quadrupled to 2.98 billion metric tons. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization expects crop yields to increase to about 1.4 per year through to 2050. The upshot is that the food supply will increase faster than the population, thereby increasing global food security. Am I making my point? See, we get bombarded with this stuff to the fear, to the point of fear, where you don't want to eat or drive. They wouldn't be told we mustn't eat meat anymore. Go and have a steak on payday. And don't get me wrong, you don't. With the compliments of ESCOM, we'll kick in again. It must be our generator. It's not global warming, it's the generator getting hot. <laughs> Let me just wait, because they record this. Is this helping you today? How many of you heard a man called Dennis Prager? He's a Jew, he's written a number of ex excellent books, but he talks about the myth of overpopulation. He says, the myth of overpopulation is an unfounded belief that the number of people on the earth will exceed the carrying capacity of the planet in the foreseeable future, leading to economic or social collapse, and that actions ought to be taken to curb population growth. There's a website that you can go look at, and um, they keep telling us we're running out of resources, we're running out of oil. There was a man in 1919, David White, he was... Uh, the US, U.S. Ecological Survey, he saved, surveyed the whole of America and studied how much oil there was. And in 1919, he said that world oil production would peak in just nine years. How I many you know? It hasn't. Hmm? They say that just recent, that since that time, they've pumped 983 billion barrels out of the ground. So whether you agree with oil or not, we're not running out of resources. In fact, I love what the Saudi Arabian oil minister, Ahmed Zaki Samini, said, and I don't always quote Saudi Arabians, but he said this, the Stone Age came to an end not because we had a lack of stones, and the Oil Age will come to an end not because we have a lack of oil. I like it. You don't have to like it, but I do. So Malthusianism, eugenics, the population bomb. Number four here, and I'm going to come to a close soon because we've still got a piece to read. Reproductive rights. Isn't that interesting? That's why abortion is so big is because it limits the population and actually helps the environment. How evil can you be and still breathe? Abortion by choice. Bernie Sanders, the U.S. socialist, who irks me, annoys me, delete that from the TV broadcast, he says abortion is an important way of addressing global overpopulation. You see, I don't believe the experts. I believe Genesis. Austin Roos, I love this. He's the president of the Catholic Family and Human Rights Institute in New York. I love this. He says anyone can test the theory of overpopulation. However, next time you're in an airplane flying virtually anywhere in the world, even in the very populous United States, look down from on high and what you will see is a remarkably empty planet straining to be made into a garden by more of us. 
One last quote here, and we'll get to the last passage of Scripture. Is this helping anybody today? Adam Grozer is the author, uh, is an author and a president of a Bible seminary. He said this. He said, in 1968, the fear was global starvation. In 2020, humans wasted an estimated 1.6 billion tons of food at a cost of $1.2 trillion. In 1968, the fear was overpopulation. In 2020, underpopulated, underpopulated towns and cities paid people to move there. I'll bring up the, is the, is the websites for this, any? And websites for that? No, okay. You can go online and see this stuff, you know. Uh, helping Christians think about the myth of overpopulation. Just type that in, and all these facts come up. It's quite amazing. Uh, I don't believe we're evolved. I believe in only two genders. I believe in creation. I believe the Bible's right. Here's my point, and you just stay with me. Here's my point. We either believe the Bible is right or we agree to insanity. Not a different point of view. We agree to insanity. It's becoming insane. I need to finish reading. Are you with me? Can I go? I can. I get the nod from the executive boss. I can go. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 18. Watch this. We're nearly done. The sons of Noah came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Notice it mentions his child. Canaan, because a nation came from there. But watch, there were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth, the nations. Noah, the man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. And when he drank some of its wine, must have been about four years later, he became drunk. This righteous man that was blameless in all the earth got on his ear, and he lay uncovered in his tent. Here's an interesting thing. Excess alcohol use often leads to... Get dressed at night, he's not going to touch me. No one's going to put their hand down my pants, but after a couple. <laughs> no, no, take warning here. Take warning. We don't believe in abstinence, but we do believe there's a great danger. You know, alcohol's like it's like fire. In the fireplace, it's okay, it warms the house. Outside the fireplace, it'll burn the house down. Let me read on. Now, watch this. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told. He's two brothers outside. The big question you should write in there is, why? But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it across their shoulders, and they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way, so they would not see their, father's, their father naked. When Noah woke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be who? Didn't say cursed be Ham. He pointed to the grandson. I think the grandson saw and told his father, and his father told the brothers. So he cursed the grandson. Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. They became wicked nation. He also said, praise the Lord, the God of Shem, which is the Semites. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory, that's the Gentiles. And may Japheth, a Gentile, live in the tents of Shem. In other words, Gentiles would live in the tents of Jews, which is the way Christians, we, we enjoy the Jewish benefit. I don't have time to explain all that today. But after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years. Isn't that good? And then he died. He was the third oldest. Do you know that he lived right past the Tower of Babel up to the time of Abraham? But this is what I want to say here. You can be saved and called and used by God and still fail. No one is excluded from sin. And we all need to guard ourselves from sin. Are you with me? And it's a sad fact. I believe what happened there is Noah went on and on and on for years and years and years serving God, but he got weary. And then eventually let his guard drop. You've got to guard your life. And here's the thing. Don't keep highlighting the faults of your family. If you're prone to going to work and talking about your wife, stop it. 
If you're used to going to work and complaining about your parents, unless you're talking to a pastor about a particular problem, people share that with me, don't go and expose your family. Even if your father's a drunkard, don't do it. Guard the family, keep the honor. Don't hide things, but protect your family. In fact, even in a church, don't keep looking for faults with the fathers and the pastors and leaders. Rather cover them if they're not big sins. Because this man was basically righteous. Now, we're not talking about covering over sexual sin, but weakness and failure. Don't keep highlighting it. Some people are nitpickers. Stop it. Protect the family and defend the family. And I want to say here, the moral of this story as we close off here, it's so important, is this. You can save the world, but you really got to focus on saving yourself. Noah was responsible for saving the world. But in the end, he couldn't save himself. And I see all the activists in the world with all their theories. Just attend to yourself and leave the rest to God. We hope you have been blessed and inspired by this message.